Good evening. I hope you've had a great day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. My name is Big Voice Jay, and this is the show where we get you ready for a good night's sleep with some fine public domain short stories for kids and adults. Stories you know you've read before, but have probably haven't heard in a good long while. Links to tonight's stories can be found in the show notes at bedtimewithbvj.com. Tonight we continue our story, The Spectacles by Edgar Allan Poe. Upon this latter point, said Madame Lalande laughingly, you have been surely injudicious in coming to confession, for without the confession I take it for granted that no one would have accused you of the crime. By the way, she continued, have you any recollection? And, and here I fancied that a blush, even through the gloom of the apartment, became distinctly visible upon her cheek. Have you any recollection, mon cher ami, of this little ocular assistant, which now depends from my neck? As she spoke, she twirled in her fingers the identical double eyeglass, which had so overwhelmed me with confusion at the opera. Full well, alas, I do remember it, I exclaimed, pressing passionately the delicate hand which offered the glasses for my inspection. They formed a complex and magnificent toy, richly chased and filigreed, and gleaming with jewels which, even in the deficient light, I could not help perceiving were of high value. Eh bien, mon ami! Eh bien, mon ami! She resumed with a certain impressment of manner, then, that rather surprised me. Eh bien, mon ami, you have earnestly besought of me a favor which you have been pleased to denominate priceless. You have demanded of me my hand upon the morrow. Should I yield to your entreaties, and I may add to the pleadings of my own bosom, will I not be entitled to demand of you a very, very little boon in return? Name it! I exclaimed with an energy that had nearly drawn upon us the observation of the company, and restrained by their presence alone from throwing myself impetuously at her feet. Name it, my beloved, my Eugenie, my own. Name it! But alas, it is already yielded air named. You shall conquer then, mon ami, said she. For the sake of the Eugenie whom you love, this little weakness which you have at last confessed, this weakness more moral than physical, and which, let me assure you, is so unbecoming the nobility of your real nature, so inconsistent with the candor of your usual character, and which, if permitted further control, will assuredly involve you, sooner or later, some very disagreeable scrape. You shall conquer, for my sake, this affection which leads you, as you yourself acknowledge, to the tacit or implied denial of your infirmity of vision. For this infirmity you you virtually deny in refusing to employ the customary means for its relief. 
understand me to say, then, that I wish you to wear spectacles. Hush, you have already consented to wear them for my sake. You shall accept the little toy which I now hold in my hand, and which, though admirable as an aid to vision, is really of no very immense value as a gem. You perceive that, by a trifling modification, thus or thus it can be adapted to the eyes in the form of spectacles or worn in the waistcoat pocket as an eyeglass. It is in the former mode, however, and habitually, that you have already consented to wear it for my sake. This request, must I confess it, confused me in in no little degree, but the condition with which it was coupled rendered hesitation, of course, a matter altogether out of the question. It is done, I cried, with all the enthusiasm that I could muster at the moment. It is done. It is most cheerfully agreed. I sacrifice every feeling for your sake. Tonight I wear this dear eyeglass, as an eyeglass, and upon my heart, with the earliest dawn of that morning, which gives me the pleasure of calling you wife, I will place it upon my, upon my nose, and there wear it ever afterward, in the less romantic and less fashionable, but certainly in the more serviceable form which you desire." Our conversation now turned upon the details of our arrangements for the morrow. Talbot, I learned from my betrothed, had just arrived in time. Had just arrived in town. I was to see him at once. Through a carriage. The soiree would scarcely break up before two, and by this hour the vehicle was to be at the door, when, in the confusion occasioned by the departure of the company, Madame L. could easily enter it unobserved. We were then to call at the house of a clergyman who would be in waiting, there be named, there be married, drop Talbot, and proceed on a short tour to the east, leaving the fashionable world at home to make whatever comments upon the matter it thought best. Having planned all this, I immediately took leave and went in search of Talbot, but on the way I could not refrain from stepping into a hotel for the purpose of inspecting the miniature, and this I did by the powerful aid of the glasses. The countenance was the surpassingly beautiful one, those large, luminous eyes, that proud Grecian nose, those dark, luxuriant curls. Ah, said I, exultingly to myself. This is indeed the speaking image of my beloved. I turned the reverse and discovered the words. Eugene Lalande, aged twenty-seven years and seven months. I found Talbot at home and proceeded at once to acquaint him with my good fortune. He professed excessive astonishment, of course, but congratulated me most cordially and every assistance in his power. In a word, we carried out our arrangement for the letter. In a word, we carried out our arrangement to the letter, and at two in the morning, just ten minutes after the ceremony, 
I found myself in a close carriage with Madame Lalande. I found myself in a close carriage with Madame Lalande, with Mrs. Simpson, I should say, and driving at a great rate out of town, at a direction northeast by north, half north. It had been determined for us by Talbot that as we were to be up all night, we should make our first stop at sea, a village about twenty miles from the city, and there get an early breakfast and some repose before proceeding upon our route. And for precisely, therefore, the carriage drew up at the door at the principal inn. I handed my adored wife out and ordered breakfast forthwith. In the meantime, we were shown into a small parlor and sat down. It was now nearly, if not altogether, daylight, and as I gazed, enraptured at the angel by my side, enraptured at the angel by my side, the singular idea came all at once into my head that this was really the first moment since my acquaintance with the celebrated loveliness of Madame Lalande, that I had enjoyed a near inspection of that loveliness by daylight at all. And now, mon ami, said she, and now, mon ami, said she, taking my hand and interrupting this train of inflection, and so interrupting this train of reflection, and now, mon ami, mon cher ami, since we are indissolubly one, since I have yielded to your passionate entreaties, and performed my portion of our agreement, I presume you have not forgotten that you also have a little favor to bestow, a little promise which it is your intention to keep. Ah, let me see, let me remember. Yes, full easily do I call to mind the precious words, the precise words of the dear promise you made to Eugenie last night. Listen, you spoke thus. It is done. It is most cheerfully agreed. I sacrifice every feeling for your sake. Tonight I wear this dear eyeglass as an eyeglass, and upon my heart. But with the earliest dawn of that morning, which gives me the privilege of calling you wife, I shall place it upon my nose, and there wear it afterward in the less romantic and less fashionable, but certainly in the more serviceable, form which you desire. These were the exact words, my beloved husband, were they not? They were, I said to you. You have an excellent memory, and assuredly, my beautiful Eugenie, there is no disposition on my part to evade the performance of the trivial promise they imply. See, behold, they are becoming, rather, are they not? And here, having arranged the glasses in the ordinary form of spectacles, I applied them gingerly in their proper position, while Madame Simpson, adjusting her cap, folding her arms, sat bolt upright in her chair, in a somewhat stiff and prim, and indeed in a somewhat undignified procession. Goodness gracious me! I exclaimed, almost at the very instant that the rim of the spectacles had settled upon my nose. My goodness gracious me! What can be the matter with these glasses? In taking them quickly off, I wiped them carefully with a silk handkerchief and adjusted them again. But if, in the first instance, there had occurred something which occasioned me surprise, 
In the second, this surprise became elevated into astonishment, and this astonishment was profound, was extreme. Indeed, I may say it was horrific. What in the name of everything hideous did this mean? Could I believe my eyes? Could I? That was the question. Was that... Was that... Was that rouge? And were those... And were those wrinkles upon the visage of Eugenia Lalande? And oh, Jupiter. And every one of the gods and goddesses, little and big. What, what, what? What had become of her teeth? I dashed the spectacles violently to the ground and, leaping to my feet, stood erect in the middle of the floor, confronting Mrs. Simpsons with my arms set akimbo and grinning and foaming and, at the same time, utterly speechless with terror and with rage. Now I've already said that Madame Eugenie Leland, that is to say Simpson, spoke the English language but very little better than she wrote it, and for this reason that she properly never attempted to speak it upon ordinary occasions. But rage will carry a lady to any extreme. And in the present care, it carried Mrs. Simpson to the very extraordinary extreme of attempting to hold a conversation in a tongue that she did not altogether understand. Well, monsieur, said she, after surveying me in great apparent astonishment for some moments. Well, monsieur, and what then? What the matter now? Is it the dance de saint Dusée that you see? If not like me, what for why the pig in the poke? You wretch, said I, catching my, dra- catching my breath. You, you villainous old hag! Hag? Or... Me not so well. After all, me not one single day more than eighty-two. Eighty-two! I ejaculated, staggering to the wall. Eighty-two hundred thousand baboons! The miniature said twenty-seven years and seven months. To be sure, that is so. Very true. But then the portrait has been taken for these fifty-five years. When I go marry my second husband, Monsieur Lalande, at that time I had the portrait taken for my daughter by my first husband, Monsieur Mazar. Mazar? said I. Yes, Mazar, said she, mimicking my pronunciation, which, to speak truth, was none of the best. Envy den! And what den? What you know about the Mazar? Nothing, you old fright. I know nothing about him at all. Only I had an ancestor of that name once upon a time. That name? And what you have to say to that name? This very good name, and so is Vossard. That is very good name, too. My daughter, Mademoiselle Mossard, she married von Monsieur Vossard, and... And the name is but the very respectable name. Mossart? I exclaimed. Vossart? What do you mean? What I mean? I mean Vossart and Mossart. And for the matter of fact, I mean Crossart and Frossart too. If I only think proper to mean it. My daughter's daughter, Mademoiselle Vossart, she married von Monsieur Crossart. And then again, my daughter's granddaughter, Mademoiselle Crossart, 
She married for Monsieur Frossard, and I suppose you say that that is not very respectable name. Frossard, I said. Frossard, I said, beginning to faint. Why, surely you don't say Mozart and Vossart and Crossart and Frossart? Yes, she replied, leaning fully back in her chair and stretching out her lower limbs at great length. Yes, Mossart and Fossart and Crossart and Fossart. Well, Monsieur Frossard, he was a von de big vat you call fool. He was von de great big dunce like yourself. For he, la belle France, for come to this stupid Amérique. And he, when he get there, he went in a von de stupid, von ver, von ver stupid son. So I hear, though I not yet have had the pleasure to meet with him, neither he nor my companion, the Madame Stephanie Lalande. His name is Napoleon Bonaparte Frossard, and I suppose you say that that too is not the respectable name. Either the length or the nature of this speech effect of working up Mrs. Simpson into a very extraordinary passion indeed, and as she made an end of it with great labor, she jumped up from her chair like somebody bewitched, dropping upon the floor an entire universe of bustle as she lumped. Once again her feet, she gnashed her gums. Once upon her feet, she gnashed her gums, brandished her arms, rolled up her sleeves, shook her fist in my face, and concluded the performance by tearing the cap from her head, and with it, an immense wig of the most valuable and beautiful black hair, the whole of which she dashed upon the ground with a yell, and there trampled and danced a fandango upon it in an absolute ecstasy and agony of rage. Meantime, I sank aghast into the chair which she had vacated. Moissard and Voissard, I repeated, thoughtfully as she cut one of her pigeon wings and Crossard and Froissard, as she completed another. Moissard and Voissard and Crossard and Napoleon Bonaparte Froissard. Why, you ineffable old serpent, that's me! That's me, do you hear? That's me! Here I screamed at the top of my voice. That's me! I am Napoleon Bonaparte Froissard, and if I haven't married my great-great-grandmother, I wish I may be overwhelmingly confounded. Madame Eugenie Lalande Quasi-Simpson from Les Moissards was in sober fact my great-great-grandmother. In her youth, she had been beautiful and even at 82 retained the majestic height, the sculptural contour of head, the fine eyes and Grecian nose of her girlhood. By the aid of those of pearl powder, of rouge, of false hair, false teeth, and false tonneur, as well as of the most skillful modists of Paris, she contrived to hold a respectable footing among the beauties on purpose of the French metropolis. In this respect, indeed, she might have been regarded as little less than the equal of the celebrated Ninon de Lencio. Indeed, she might have been regarded as little less than the equal of the celebrated Nino de L'Enclos. 
She was immensely wealthy, and being left for the second time a widow without children, she bethought herself of my existence in America, and for the purpose of making me her heir, paid a visit to the United States in company with a distinct and exceedingly loving, lovely relative of her second husband, a Madame Stephanie Lalande. At the opera, my great-great-grandmother's attention was arrested by my notice, and upon surveying me through her eyeglass, she was struck with a certain family resemblance to herself. Thus interested, and knowing that the heir she sought was actually in the city, she made inquiries of her party respecting me. The gentleman who attended her knew my person and told her who I was. The information thus obtained induced her to renew her scrutiny, and this scrutiny it was so which emboldened her, emboldened me, that I behaved in the absurd manner already detailed. She returned my bow, however, under the impression that by some odd accident I had discovered her identity. When deceived by my weakness of vision and the arts of the toilet, in respect to the age and charms of the strange lady, I demanded so enthusiastically of Talbot who she was, he concluded that I meant the younger beauty, as a matter of course, and so informed me with perfect truth that she was the celebrated widow, that she was the celebrated widow, Madame Lalande. In the street next morning, my great-great-grandmother encountered Talbot, an old Parisian acquaintance, and the conversation very naturally turned upon myself. My deficiencies of vision were then explained, for these were notorious, although I was entirely ignorant of their notoriety, and my good old relative discovered, much to her chagrin, that she had been deceived in supposing me aware of her identity, and that I had been merely making a fool of myself and making open love in a theater to an old woman unknown. By way of punishing me for this imprudence, she concocted with Talbot a plot. He purposely kept out of my way to avoid giving me the introduction. My street inquiries about the lovely widow, Madame Lalande, were supposed to refer to the younger lady, of course, and thus the conversation with the three gentlemen with whom I encountered shortly after leaving Talbot's hotel will be easily explained, as well as their allusion to Ninon de Longclos. I had no opportunity of seeing Madame Lalande closely during daylight, and at her musical soiree, my silly weakness in refusing the aid of glasses effectually prevented me from making a discovery of her age. When Madame Lalande was called upon to sing, the younger lady was intended, and it was she who arose to obey the call. My great-great-grandmother, to further the deception, arising at the same moment and accompanying her to the piano in the main drawing-room, and I decided upon escorting her thither. It had been her design to suggest the propriety of my remaining where I was, but my own prudential views rendered this unnecessary. The songs which I so much admired and which so confirmed my impression of the youth of my mistress were executed by Madame Stephanie Lalande. The eyeglass was presented by way of adding a reproof to the hoax, a sting to the epigram of the deception. Its presentation afforded an opportunity for the lecture upon affectation 
with which I was so especially edified. It is almost superfluous to add that the glasses of the instrument, as worn by the old lady, had been exchanged by her for a pair better adapted to my years. They suited me, in fact, to a T. The clergyman, who merely pretended to be their fatal knot, was a boon companion of Talbot's and no priest. He was an excellent whip, however, and, having doffed his cassock to put on a great coat, he drove the hack which conveyed happy couple out of town. Talbot took a seat at his side. The two scoundrels were thus in at the death. A half-open window at the back parlor of the inn aroused themselves in grinning at the denouement of the drama. I believe I shall be forced to call them both out. Nevertheless, I am not the husband of my great-grand-grandmother, and this is a reflection which affords me infinite relief. But I am the husband of Madame Lalande, of Madame Stephanie Lalande, with whom my good old relative, besides making me her sole heir when she dies if she ever does, has been at the trouble of concocting me a match. In conclusion, I am done forever, I will be adieu, and am never to be met without spectacles. Boy, that's a long way to go for a, uh... Was it a joke? Question mark? <laughs> I guess she just wanted to meet her dumb American kid. <laughs> Oh, oh, love will make you do some crazy things. Even make you change your name, put on glasses, put on things you said you normally would never do or would never, ever, ever do. And if you are looking for glasses, why don't you try Warby Park? Put BVJ in the product code and it'll do absolutely nothing because that doesn't exist. But Warby Park does. Sure, they make good sunglasses and things like that. But what does exist is Bedtime with BVJ.com. This podcast is now available on Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. Do you want more? Do you have a story you'd like me to read? Email me, bigvoicej at gmail.com. New episodes release every Monday to Friday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Select episodes are available to view online at twitch.tv slash bigvoicej. Thanks so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. (laughs)